what's going on Anesthesianers. Boy, have we got a fun episode for you today. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Fred Winninger, who is a veterinary neurologist. Not only that, but a surgical neurologist, you guys. You know I love my surgical neurology patients. I love that anesthesia. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that. He obtained his VMD at UPenn. Yep, you heard me right. VMD, we got a pen we on our hands. Um, previous professor at the University of Missouri, researcher, author, lecturer all over the place. Check him out if you ever get the chance to hear him lecture. Founder of 3D Veterinary Printing and currently practicing uh, surgical neurology in North Carolina. That's right. Okay, That's great. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited. Let's get into it. So, because um, I want to go through a couple of things with you today. Um, you know, not only do I want to go through the case that we always do with everybody, uh, but also I kind of want to talk about some some not medical stuff and some cool things that you're doing in your practice, especially with your staff. So we'll get into that in a minute. My first thing that I do want to ask you about, though, is I know that you're really, really into research. And I always think that this is really interesting, uh, what people are really interested in researching. And I see that you're the founder of 3D Veterinary Printing. Uh, can you just give us a little kind of for the people who don't know what's going on with veterinary uh, printing or 3D printing? Kind of what's that like? T tell us what's going on. I find this whole thing very interesting. Yeah, so I got really excited about 3D veterinary printing with um, this one case I had. It was this cat that had this really large meningioma, and uh, we did a big craniectomy to remove this uh, meningioma. But in the end of it, we were using these titanium plates that didn't really fit the animals very well. And so cosmetically, it didn't look right, and their skull never healed the right way. And uh, the owner of this cat, the cat did very well, fortunately. And the owner came in and he said, um, Can I? borrow the CT? And I said, yeah, sure. And he came back a week later and he had printed out the skull with the plate on it of his own cat. And I was starting to get interested in printing at the, that time. It turned out that he was um, one of the lead researchers in the 3D printing lab at Washington University where they made all these custom prosthetic arms for children. And so we started working together and I got pretty excited about it because there's so many applications for it. So 3D printing, which is also known as additive modeling, is when you basically create something from nothing, the ground up. It's the opposite of, say, sculpting, where you're taking away instead you're adding it. And you can create pretty much any structure. So we started doing it with things like anatomic parts, using it for teaching purposes or surgical practice. And that was kind of neat. But really, when we realized we could make any customized tool and further when we realized that we could utilize CAT scans as our primary method of looking at anatomy, then we started realizing the application wasn't as much for making anatomy, but it was for creating custom surgical tools for individual animals. So now what we'll do is we'll create jigs to fix angular limb deformities, or my primary application is putting implants in the spine is scary. So uh, now we can use we can create little jigs that basically interdigitate with the vertebra and they have a little channel in them and we can make a preordained trajectory. Basically uh, put the implant right on the vertebra, put the implant through, and not only is it an effective implant, but it's super safe and not nearly as scary, you know? So uh, that's kind of what we're doing with it right now, but the applications in the future are enormous and it would not surprise me if in the lifetime of our curtain veterinary colleagues 
they'll be actually placing in 3D implantable implants, which could be bone grafts, or it could be even something as complex as a stent or a, a, a vessel replacement, you know, so the sky's the limit with what we can do with that. Oh, that's so cool. Like, very, very interesting. I like get super geeked out on uh, like these things that we've never thought about, about before. And for, uh, I'll say like, you know, George Jetson kind of stuff. And for, yeah. uh, for the kids listening, George Jetson was a cartoon uh, that your, you know, grandma would make you watch on the days that you stayed home from school. Uh, you came on before the young and the restless and the price is right. So for everybody it, who it, stayed home it, from school at the same time frame that I did. <laughs> Yeah, they had their dog Astro. And it's so weird that you use the Jetsons as your example, because I use that example when I'm teaching students about it. And I'll have this picture of like Judy up there with Rosie and stuff like that. And people are like, uh, Judy, what? What is that? Yeah, who is that? What are you talking <laughs> about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm cool and hip. All right. So we're going to get into a case. Uh, and of course, we're going to we're going to go neuro here um, to get your expert opinion on how we can kind of manage these things. So Dr. Winninger, your case today is Daisy, who is an eight-year-old basset hound, came into the clinic because she's down in the hind. Um, the owners just thought that she was getting older. They just thought, you know, old age changes, osteoarthritis, no big deal. But for the past two days, she's kind of been dragging herself around. They've been helping her outside. This patient comes into the clinic Kind of give us your thoughts on what are the first things we should be looking at? What are the first, you know, tests that we should consider running? Uh, and then maybe talk about some pain management we could do. Yeah, kind of the uh, neurosurgeon's bread and butter case, right? So uh, <laughs> when we see when we see that chondrodystrophic animal come in, obviously the assumption, we want to neurolocalize it rather. And so we have to do a complete neuro exam, which includes things like testing proprioception reflexes and whatnot, and figure out where its problem is. But Based on your description, I would assume it's a T3L3 myelopathy and in a basset hound because it's a chondrodystrophic breed, though you, I've certainly seen tumors and inflammatory diseases do this 99 times out of 100, it's going to be a herniated disc, intervertebral disc disease. So I think the first thing the practitioner needs to ask themselves is with regard to function. You know, what, what is this dog's function? Is it only painful? Does it only have proprioceptive deficits? Does it have loss of motor control? Does it have pain perception in its feet? Because each one of those is gonna be a very different approach to it. Because in any case, whether it's because of financially motivated or medically motivated, we're gonna to have to make decisions if this is a candidate for conservative care versus more aggressive intervention like MRI and decompressive surgery. So as kind of a general rule of thumb, if the dog's coming in, they haven't rapidly gone down. It sounds like from the history, it's been, you know, progressive, but slowly progressive. If they have only pain or if they have significant motor function, and when I say significant motor function, I'm speaking to ambulatory with support, then they're still a candidate for medical management, as opposed to if they're, if they have motor function, but they can't really stand up without any support, or if they've lost motor function, or obviously if they lost pain perception, the window for aggressive intervention is narrow, is uh, rapidly narrowing. And so uh -huh. in those cases, those are the cases that really should be referred if the owners are amenable to it, uh, to a neurologist to have an MRI and surgery, because time is, is of the essence in those cases. And um, when you say time of, is of the essence, just to clarify, are we talking about you'd like them to go see a neurologist the next day, or do we have a couple of days or a week here? Yeah. It, so it, 
It's actually interesting. It's a little bit controversial as far as how wide that window is, but mm. kind of as a general rule for us, if they um, cannot stand without support, uh, then we would want them there on an emergent basis as soon as possible. Okay, good to know. Should we talk about conservative care a little bit first? Yeah, then, I think yeah. so. I think that's good information because the thing is that, you know, listen, I work in specialty and emergency, I see a lot, but not everybody is going to be able to go for the MRI option and the, the surgery, right? We Some people right. have financial limitations. They want to make the dog comfortable. Where do they go from there? Hundred percent, and I, and to be clear, like the the category that are good candidates for conservative management, they're they're good candidates. And if I ever see a case like that, which I don't often because they usually go to a generalist first, what I tell them is we can try this conservative management. It's going to work about fifty to sixty percent of the time, and I'll see you back in two weeks if it doesn't work, and then we can always proceed without being behind the eight ball. With the major caveat that I hammer into the clients time and time again. If you see a decline, it becomes an emergency. Then you need mm -hmm. to come back and see me right away. But again, I've also, on the flip side, seen dogs that I would call not the best candidates for conservative care, paralyzed or paralyzed without pain perception. And despite the fact that their prognosis is much poorer, you know, starting to get now into the 25% chance of recovery or lower, I have seen those dogs recover. So it's not necessarily a sentence for paralysis. But, but if we're going to do conservative care, there's a couple of mainstays of care. Now, the, the, the primary mainstay is going to be rest. And when I say rest, those animals should be probably restricted to a crate for uh, 22 hours a day. And then the other two hours can be taking the dogs out for leash walks, no high impact activities, but I do think some movement's good. And the rationale behind the cage restriction is there is now a rent, there's a hole in that intervertebral disc. And if the dogs move in the wrong way, more disc material can squirt out and basically cause compression mm. and ischemia on the spinal cord. That said, uh, what else do we have to do for those dogs? In addition to uh, rest, what we want to do is we want to provide them with analgesia. And so the primary analgesics that we're going we're gonna to use in those cases are actually anti-inflammatories. And this, again, is one of the great controversies of veterinary medicine. What, an what anti-inflammatories do you use? Um, <laughs> Some people are adamant non-steroidal followers. I'm in the, in the cohort of veterinarians that really prefers steroids. I think that it provides the animals with more pain relief than the non-steroidals. But the major thing to stress in these cases is that the anti-inflammatory, whether it's prednisone or the NSAID, is not changing their long-term outcome. It's not helping them get to a better prognosis, and that's been proven time and time and time again in the literature. It's only providing them with analgesic support mm -hmm. through its anti-inflammatory effects. And then we like to use two other analgesics. I like reaching for a short-term analgesic and I like reaching for a long-term analgesic. So for a short-term analgesic, it's kind of an old drug. It's a drug that's not commonly used because of its acquisition and, and dangers of addiction, but we use a lot of codeine sulfate. We've found it oh, to be- Oh yeah, I love the codeine. Oh my God, it's so effective. And everyone that I ever introduce it to, and I learned it through my mentor at Washington State University, Rod Bagley, but anyone I introduce it to, they, they look at me sideways because it's not a drug that you really learn that much about in vet school, but it is so effective. And it's not just effective for back dogs. I mean, sometimes they'll even start using it for post-op TPLOs because they really enjoy how mm -hmm. effective it is. So I, yep. I really like it. It's great. 
Yeah. And it's like a 15 mg per kg or 15 milligram per dachshund or a one to two uh, mg per kg. And you can use it anywhere between Q8 all the way up to Q4 if you really, really needed to. Replacements for codeine, you know, uh, one option would be something like a fentanyl patch. A lot of neurologists like that. And I think that's another good consideration mm-hmm. for a temporary analgesic. Ones that I don't love as much, I don't find that tramadol is as effective as we'd like for it to be. Um, but, you know, it's it, sometimes it's the only thing that you have. So some veterinarians will reach for that. And then another alternative is oral buprenorphine, which we use mm-hmm. in small dogs and cats as kind of another option. And then the long-term analgesic that we like to use is gabapentin, Neurontin. It's a really effective neuroleptic. And we use it as a, at a much higher dose than most veterinarians are accustomed to. We use it at 15 milligrams per kilogram TID. And that's going to be our long-term analgesic that we can use indefinitely. A lot of my clients get kind of nervous about giving a drug for that long. But what I stress to them is that drug was created for longevity. You know, it was created for people with fibromyalgia to use essentially indefinitely. And so um, it's a safe drug in the long term. Very interesting. Yeah, I like love that you're talking about uh, codeine, and and it is uh, interesting how you have some of these drugs, and like they're really hot, you know, one moment, uh, and yeah. then kind of fade away, and they're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I was just having the conversation um, about a personal, like a strange little sleeper drug favorite of mine, methacarbamol, um, yeah. where I'm like, you know. I just don't feel like methacarbamol gets the love it deserves. <laughs> yeah. Because I've had some dogs come in um, where methacarbamol made such a huge difference. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, why don't, why don't we use that more? <laughs> I, you know, and I, I actually have a thought on that. So methacarbamol being a muscle relaxant when it comes to, when it comes to spinal diseases, pain can emanate from so many different places. And I think Maybe we should have talked about that first in, in hindsight, because what, what's painful in the vertebral column? Well, you have the disc actually has tremendous amount of nerve fibers in it. So tearing of the annulus is going to be painful. The periosteum around the vertebra is going to be painful. Uh, and then other things that are going to be painful are the meninges are very sensitive and the nerve roots are very sensitive, also causing spasm of the muscles, which can be really painful. If anyone here has had a pulled neck, you know that it's the spasm in your muscle that hurts much more than the, than the nerve pain. And yeah. so w- I think there's two things of note about that. You'll notice that I didn't say the spinal cord. The spinal cord itself has no nociceptors in it. So kind of paradoxically, despite the fact that it is the organ, the conduit, which sends messages to the brain saying, ouch, that hurts, it actually has no propensity to feel in and of itself. And so things like FCEs, ischemic myelopathy, strokes of the spinal cord, in theory, despite the fact that they could be painful very temporarily, that's not a painful condition because you're not hurting something that has the ability to feel. So I always thought that was interesting. But with regard to methacarbamol, I think it's much more effective in neck problems than back problems for that reason. Um, Back problems hurt because most dachshunds will herniate their discs into their spinal column and compress all those materials there, but it doesn't cause that same kind of muscular spasm that cervical disease causes because it affects the nerve roots as they exit the foramina. And so I think methacarbamol is a really effective drug for neck disease, but in my hands, I I don't love it for backs as much. Yeah, I would say that um, the time that I remember it working amazingly was we had this greyhound come in that it was in for neck pain. And I remember Mm -hmm. uh, that dog 
did okay with the NSAIDs, but really turned around with the methacarbamol. Yeah. Um, and I just remember being like, oh yeah, that drug. Um, and then interestingly yeah. enough, and I had my own neck issue, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I'm on all these drugs and I said to them, they wanted to give me, I mean, they wanted to give me a lot of different drugs, but I was like, Hey, how about you give me some methacarbamol? And they just kind of looked at me and they were like, yeah, okay, we could try that. And I was like, Ooh, this stuff is good. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, ha- I haven't been on it before, but I, I, I do know that humans don't really give Robaxinus to that's for sure. But I, I do. Um, yeah, I do think that neck disease is a different animal than back disease, no pun intended. And, <laughs> you know, dogs can come in with lesions that are more compressive in the neck than they are in the back, but in the neck only cause pain and in the back cause paralysis, you know, so the neck has mm-hmm. much more so pain in the neck is a much more grave symptom than it is in the back for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. So let's get back to our friend Daisy here. If we are thinking, um, let's say things have gotten worse and, and, you know, now she's at your place and she's here to see you and you're talking surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Walk me through kind of like, what are you thinking? What do you usually like to, you know, have anesthetically and analgesically for these patients, analgesically being like what I consider really important. Um, and then talk to me about the immediate kind of 12 to 24 hours post-operatively. What are you doing to control pain in that in that time frame? Well, preview into the second part of our conversation, our, my technicians would probably be better at answering these questions than I am. <laughs> but um, our general protocol is we want to try and avoid as many of the opioids until the examination is done, because it can really alter function and it can also alter pain perception, which are such important metrics of how the animals are doing. But that's why we kind of, as soon as they walk into the ER, we expedite doing our exam so that we can get them started. And generally, if it's not gonna go immediately into induction, we're gonna start them on a fentanyl CRI. That's kind of our go-to of choice, just because we want to um, effectively treat those guys. If they're gonna go into um, the MRI, then, we kind of usually skip the fentanyl until we decide we're going to surgery. And mm-hmm. we'll usually reach for pre-medication, which for us is going to often be, uh, the technicians vary in what they like. Uh, many of them like hydromorphone combined with acepromazine. Some mm-hmm. of them like, um, some of them like uh, midazolam with, um, they'll use midazolam as their primary tranquilizer. And then they'll combine that with like Torb or something like that. But I, there's all different opinions about, what um what they're going to reach for because the MRI is not that painful they just want them right. pre-medicated so they can decrease their induction agent and then we induce with propofol and uh we go we put them under general anesthesia we use iso uh, just because it's what we have with regard to the vaporizer that can go into the MRI remember the we have a we have a gas vaporizer in the MRI but it has to be uh MRI compatible which means mm-hmm. it has to have all non-metallic parts in it and then um once they come out and we've decided they're going to go to surgery, and we're very fortunate that our MRI is very fast, we have an MRI that gets eight-minute acquisitions on our dachshunds using a special sequence, which is really cool. Wow. Um, th- yeah, that part's <laughs> great. Um, then my technicians will often use a higher dose of fentanyl intraoperatively to decrease the demands on the ISO and also provide them with analgesia during the surgery. And then afterwards, we keep them on that fentanyl drip. It's often a little bit lower because the animals are gonna be less painful in the post-operative period, despite how paradoxic that sounds. And we do that until the morning. And then in the morning, we 
immediately switched them over to that same conservative protocol, that combination of PRED, codeine, gabapentin. And they'll stay on the codeine for five days. They'll stay on the PRED for about two weeks at a half a mg per gig anti-inflammatory dose per day. And then the gabapentin for four weeks. So we were able to switch them over from injectables to, to our traditional analgesics a little bit, pretty quick. All right, let me ask you, do you utilize Noceta? And, you know, what's your, um, what's your thought, Ben, on that? I am a big lover of local and regional anesthesia. And we see, we have had, now I, I uh, again, I'm talking about it not in a, a neuro sense. My experience has been more in the orthopedic. Um, but, you know, there's been some chatter. Yeah. About Noceta. Now, is this a case that you would consider something like that? I don't have the uh, experience or expertise with Noceta, but I'm very interested in it. I mean, anytime you're putting any type of analgesic near the spinal cord, you always have to worry about its effects on neurologic function. But Mm -hmm. Noceta makes a lot of sense, and it's just something I don't have enough experience with yet. But I'm excited to try it. Totally fair. Now, how long do these patients usually stay in hospital with you? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's kind of contingent on how they came in and how fast they were declining. If they were rapidly declining, that means they're usually going to continue to decline for a little while postoperatively, as opposed to if they were more stable, they're they're probably not. So if an animal comes in and they have significant motor function and not doing this crashing neurologic function, uh, they will usually usually leave the hospital the next day. Um, Yeah. If, uh, if they are, um, if they don't have motor function or if they were rapidly declining and will continue to decline, they could stay with us anywhere up until six or seven days. We have kind of a, a few rate limiting steps. Our rate limiting steps are the obvious one is we want the owners to be comfortable caring for them. Uh, we want to make sure their, the animals are comfortable. Uh, we want to make sure their incision looks good, which usually is only within 24 hours. But I think the one that everybody has to remember is cannot Mm -hmm. go home until they can urinate unless it's more of a long-term kind of management case. So for that reason, we'll often add prazosin as an antispasmodic to help them urinate postoperatively. Okay. All right. So I'm going to segue this into kind of the second part of our conversation in that a lot of the things that you're mentioning, calculating your drugs, doing the anesthetic induction, uh, monitoring the anesthesia, and then all of the postoperative interventions are being done by your technicians. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, just uh, listeners, so you and I, so you guys know, uh, Dr. Winninger and I uh, were seated next to each other at dinner, had never met each other before. And not only was I fascinated by some of the research he was talking about, but what really got me was how efficient his hospital is able to be and how high their patient care standard is because of the way they utilize their technicians. And I think that this is something that I wish all veterinarians, you know, across the board could hear. And I just wanted to, as a technician, say thank you. We appreciate being utilized and using all of our skills and using our brains and being a part of the process. Uh, But I kind of wanted to ask you your advice on other practices and how they maybe could get started with this. I know this is usually a trust issue. Um, What are some things that you as a practitioner can give us words of wisdom so that we can have our technicians fully utilized and have a better overall experience for the client and the patient? Yeah, I think that depends how long your podcast is. I mean, I think (laughs) uh, if if, uh, I think if 
actually, I know this for a fact. We recently had a generalist in our hospital referring veterinarian of ours that had her dog in for a ventral slot procedure. And her dog um, had some complications afterwards. And I think that she had the opportunity to see how much of the aftercare and even the immersion care our technicians were doing. Part of the reason why I feel such a kinship to this is because I was a certified vet tech before I went to veterinary school. And uh, I remember being in human MRIs, pushing thiopental as the induction and maintenance agent. And I quickly learned that just hands-on experience and technical expertise enabled me to do something that my supervising clinicians, not only could they not do that, but they entrusted me to do it. And um, it's just such a wide topic, but ultimately the reason why I can do most of what I do is because I work with technicians that have a skill set that extends beyond my own. Basically, a lot of the questions that you're asking me, I'm thinking about what would Lisa do in this situation? What would Jackie and Brandon do in this situation? You know, I, I'm thinking of my technicians. Um, our service has to be autonomous, especially in the post-COVID volume era, so that we can function. So basically, I have the things that I'm capable of, and they have the things that they're capable of, and we give each other feedback on on each of those. But ultimately, we're 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 as much colleagues as we are that more traditional hierarchical kind of setup. So, uh, on in any given day, um, what'll be happening is my technicians are taking in the front of the house vital histories, so I don't have to. And probably because I wouldn't be as good at it. They're not just doing restraint um, and phlebotomy. They're helping me put effective discharges together in the front. And then in the back of the house, our MRI is in a separate building. And so we have two technicians that are one independently running a million dollar machine. And then the other one is maintaining anesthesia on an animal without supervision. And ultimately, um, it's because they're so capable. So I guess the advice I'd give to any generalist that's starting to explore that world of recognizing that technicians don't do the things that we just don't have time to do, and instead they do the things that we're less capable of, um, is just really thinking about where are your skills best placed as a veterinarian, and then think about the things that your technicians do that with a little bit of training and a little bit of support and a little bit of care might actually be able to exceed you with regard to capabilities and time. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, 100%. And how do you think utilizing your technicians to the fullest like you do, do you feel like it has increased your efficiency, um, increased your productivity? I kind of am always really amazed when I go into some clinics that not amazed. I mean, this is, they're doing a good job. They're doing a great job. Um, so I don't want it to seem like the majority of people are not doing a good job. Um, but you know, those clinics you go into and man, it just operates like this fine tuned, beautiful machine. And from the patient walking in the door to post-operative recovery is just this nice balance of everything. And I feel like based on the, you know, the conversations that we've had, your practice is functioning like that. Do you feel that way? I mean, I think we're always aspiring to, you know, uh, providers, if you will, the the fancy term for veterinarians and hopefully one day veterinary assistants or whatever term we're going to call them. And I hope that comes to fruition one day. But providers have to be at what you would call their full-time equivalent, right? They have to be maximizing everything that they can do 
both from a case management standpoint and a client satisfaction standpoint and from a financial standpoint. And the only way a veterinarian ever gets to their 100% FTE is if they have a quote unquote support staff that is capable of doing everything outside of what they can't, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the more technicians that you have that are skilled in things that, that they can be autonomous on, the better uh, your practice is going to be. I, I think it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. I got asked to go into a practice one time to do some consulting. And, you know, one of the things I noticed right off the bat is, hey, you know, you guys probably aren't able to fit in as many surgeries as you could because your clinician is the one placing the IV catheter. The clinician was the one intubating the patient. You know what I mean? Where all of these things, the technicians were kind of just standing around waiting. And I know that it's it's hard to give up ownership of some things, but I really like what you said about you know being a partnership and kind of equal measure of what what can I do within the scope of my job and what can you do and how can we work together? For sure. If I may, can I give a shout out to the rest of my technicians? Because oh, one hundred percent. Yes. Yeah, so I, they're all. I know they're fans of your podcast. So, and I know I mentioned you know we have Jackie and Caitlin in the front of the house, and we have Lisa and Brandon and our new technicians. Uh, Robert and Nella, and then the um, unsung heroes are going to be the CSRs. So Anna and so we have two CSRs, and their um, their value cannot be uh, overstated. So we have Anna and Lindsay in the front. So we got yeah. we got a good group. We Shout out group. to Anna and Lindsay taking those phone calls, man. Yeah, uh, especially during COVID. God bless y'all. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been uh, not only very interesting to, to talk about, you know, codeine and uh, methocarbamol, but also very interesting and hopefully inspires, you know, somebody to maybe go into their clinic and and be like, hey, how can we better divvy up these job functions so that we can make, again, the most efficient and, and best experience for the patient. Um, love to have you back anytime. Obviously, anytime. there's some more things that we could talk about uh, from a neuro perspective, especially when it comes to pain management. If people want to kind of co- connect with you or follow what you're doing, uh, where can they find you? Yeah. Uh, so I work at Charlotte Animal Referral and Emergency. We have an awesome website with um, all these uh, great informational blogs on it, not only for you, but for your clients. Um, one of the blogs that comes to mind is I have a blog that I wrote on videotape, teaching your client how to video their dog so that in the era of telehealth or in paroxysms where you don't actually get an opportunity to see the problem unless it's in the home environment, they know what to do with their mobile device. Because I have said time and time again that the iPhone far surpasses the MRI when it comes to um, you know technology that's changed our field. But um, with regard to like you know, educational uh, components and things like that. I teach a lot on my Instagram page. My handle is Animal Neurodoc, and I have lots of quizzes on there and really cool case studies and things like that. So I, I hope you'd follow that. And then there's also a Instagram page for 3D veterinary printing, where you could see kind of the cool and anatomic structures and jigs we're making for for patients. That sounds awesome. And for those of you curious, we're going to put links to all of those things in the show notes. So be sure to check this out. And yeah, Dr. Gwinninger, thank you so much for being a guest on the Anesthesia Nerds podcast. Thanks for having me. This is fun. <laughs>